The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town, although in that case, one earphone only, safety kids, I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. It's time to Take Command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Welcome into Take Command. I am Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. And today we are going to talk not only about the game to review the loss to the Vikings on Sunday, which is how we typically spend our Wednesday podcast, but uh, I want to actually take some time, Logan, for once. Normally we just have to skip over all of this because the the news moves so fast, but I want to batten down on a little bit of this ownership stuff and specifically spin it forward to what could be. Obviously, if there's any late-breaking news on anything on that front, you can always check out 106.7 The Fan and the Team 980 for live and local reaction. But, Logan, the news of the day, the thing that I will start my radio show with on Tuesday, which anybody listening to can go back and listen to, but we're in the weird podcast time continuum where uh, we haven't actually done this radio show yet. But start talking about this this dinner in L.A. that Jeff Bezos and Jay-Z had and the fact that legitimately it looks like there's interest there to be owners of the commanders when Dan Snyder sells this thing over the next six months or so. And one, I'm just curious, like, I, I feel like you're almost the wrong guy to ask this because you're just like, I don't care. I just here to play football. But like, if a guy like Jay Z is your owner um, or even Jeff Bezos, like Bezos is famous, famous. Um, Jay Z is a different kind of famous, but like what, what kind of impact would that have on the club? And, you know, even thinking around the locker room, like, how does that change the football? And then I want to get into like what Jeb Bezos's money could buy as well. But the idea of these celebrities <laughs> getting involved, like kind of a new thing in the NFL, but what would it, what would it mean if anything? I mean, I don't, I mean, I personally don't think it means anything like, it, you know, it might help with free agent acquisitions. You know, the idea that the owner would come out and shake a, you know, priority free agents hand and say, Hey man, you know, we'd love to have you here in Washington. I think that carries some clout with certain guys. Um, I know owners, around the league do that you know like guys meet jerry jones it's kind of oh you know i'm important enough to be here but you know in reality like most owners and i would expect bezos to be this way and maybe i'm wrong i I don't think he'd be that involved on a day-to-day basis you know um i think there is this also tendency for owners to like treat treat this like fantasy football and i'm not sure how that would be you know everyone says oh like it'd be nice to have somebody new but maybe bezos is like 
I want this to be my own little personal fantasy football team and I'm going to do whatever I want to get this done. And it gets worse from like a personnel standpoint. I don't know. I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, it, I guess on some level it's cool, but like, um, I think it's important for people to understand, like you have v- little to no interaction with the owner. Very, very little. Like they're very everywhere I've been very rarely around the facility. You know, I think I shook the owner in San Francisco's hand one time when I signed and then I didn't see him again. Didn't meet the person in Chicago didn't like talk face to face with Arthur, Arthur Blank. He's around, but didn't talk with him. And then obviously Dan, I was here for six years. And I think he said a combined like 15 words to me the whole time I was here. So it's, it's not like this, it's going to affect the day to day a lot, but I think in maybe some high leverage situations, it's like, Hey, Jay-Z, you want to come out and, you know, meet, you know, whoever it is, Odell Beckham and see if we can get him to sign here. And that might, you know, be impactful on some level. Yeah, I'm going to reframe what you said, though, a little bit, because I do think it does impact the day-to-day. It does not impact the day-to-day experience of a player, right? Like, if you're walking through the halls, you are not impacted by who the owner is. He's not coming up saying hello to you. He's not necessarily giving you, like, oh, hey, you know, I've been a very successful business person. Let me give you this piece of advice. But who your coach is is impacted by the owner because that person hired the president or, you know, executive football operations, whatever, that person hires the head coach and the GM or whatever order that happens. That person hires the position coaches. So there's like trickle down from ownership. That's obviously very important. And you know, that owner's ability to make those decisions is going to impact everything. Robert Kraft's decision to hire Bill Belichick and put him in charge of everything is a big reason why the Patriots have six Super Bowl titles while Belichick's been in charge there. Um, Obviously here, there's been a lot of decisions that haven't worked out well. Some of them were sound in uh, decision-making process and just didn't work out some of them i think were pretty pretty fairly and heavily criticized at the time uh we don't need to suss out uh who which was what now those things those things have been happening for 23 years um there's obvious you know on the business side those things as well so like there's obviously an ability but i do think it's important to note um that business success like jeff bezos ability to build amazon is not going to make him inherently great at hiring people for football it's a completely different thing um but there is an obvious impact. It's just like on a player level, you're not feeling that in any kind of direct way. Yeah, you wouldn't feel it in any direct way. And I think, like you said, I think those subsequent hires, you know, team president, you know, general manager, whatever he's involved with, you know, the team that he assembles to make that hire, th- those will be more impactful long-term for the health and wellness of this organization and the roster. But, you know, and again, like it's it's really interesting, I think, that some of these very, very successful business people, they just – when it comes to football, they just don't get it. They don't understand the operations of it. They don't, um, you know, uh, either they're used to working in a very specific kind of business environment. And, you know, I, I have this like kind of anecdotal story from when I was in San Francisco and they fired Jim Harbaugh and, you know, they kept the general manager. I forget who it was at the time. And so one of the things that I think it was bulky, wasn't it? Yeah. Bulky. Right. And so, and everyone says, Oh, that was a big mistake, but you know, bulky had a better personal relationship with, the owner at the time. And I think when you look at that, like that's something that happens in like the business world. It's like personal relationships, who you want to work with. But also I think it's understanding the expertise, right? And who is the thing, like who and what is the thing that's carrying the organization. And those things for football are, as we've talked about, are very nebulous and tenuous for people who are involved, you know, emphatically with it, right? Like, you know, even like things like that Kyle would do. And I think Kyle's a genius, right? He would do that are kind of befuddling or confusing or confounding that he would later kind of have to backtrack. Like it's, it's a much more difficult proposition for whatever reason. 
Um, you know, I think because of the, the the human element of it and the product is so human in that it's so varied, um, you know, it becomes very challenging. So even if they do make the right decisions, even if there is the sound, the process is sound, doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the product on the field, in terms of immediacy. But I do think, right. you know, uh, a change in ownership seems, and you would know better than me, seems like it would have a more positive effect on the stadium deal, for example. And I think well, that's yeah. a very pressing you know, pressing thing that needs to be resolved sooner rather than later, probably. Right. Well, that at that point or at this point, just the reality of the situation is Dan can't get a new stadium. And right. the, the only way that, that the commanders are playing in a new stadium with Dan Snyder as the owner, which I don't think even that is possible at this point, based off the reporting, um, is that if he were to rebuild on the land he already owns in Landover, because um, he's not getting any new permits and he's certainly not getting any public funding, which considering that he had DC, Maryland, and Virginia that should have been bidding against each other is uh, is not great. Uh, we, we can put it that way. Um, I do think the other thing that's different about football and like regular business is there is in any particular game only one winner and the scoreboard is extremely definitive. Mm-hmm. Like the way Amazon defines success versus their competitors in any given space like the competitor might also claim victory. If Amazon does 100% of sales and, and someone else does 67% of those sales, that might've been the sales goal of that other company. Like they right. they both can win. And, and in football, there's wins and losses. And at the end of the year, there's a champion crowned and it's, there's a scoreboard. And that, it, that immediately makes it different from any other business where you can arbitrarily change the goals. Not that uh, every team is, you know, looking every year to win the championship. Realistically, some teams are going to be in a growth phase. Some teams are like, we're competitive now. Some teams might be like, hey, we were competitive, but our guys are old and now we're in a rebuilding phase. Um, But all those teams will play on Sundays and there will be a scoreboard and they are all trying to, within the next five years, win a Super Bowl. And so that definitive black and whiteness of the competitive uh, situation, I think also varies it from a business standpoint, which affects the decisions that you make and means that the resources that you have available need to be maximized. Some of those are limited by laws of competitive balance, salary cap, et cetera. Sure. That's a very fancy way of saying that. But then there's others that are not. And that that's actually another area I wanted to, to pick your brain on a little bit is the facilities, right? Washington's facilities are far behind many in the league. I don't know if they're the worst. Um, I think the stadium is, is pretty, pretty uh, critically renowned as the worst. But mm-hmm. a bigger impact on winning and losing is like, what's your practice facility like? What kind of investments do you have in human infrastructure of strength conditioning coaches, your weight room, uh, your recovery centers, uh, your nutritionists? Like what resources and space do they have to work? And if you look at a place like Minnesota, uh, some of the stuff they have in Chicago that I've seen, um, obviously San Francisco, another place you played, has new stuff that they built around the new stadium a couple of years ago. They're just miles ahead of what Washington has. Washington's due for an upgrade. And, and to their credit, they have upgraded a lot yeah. of stuff, uh, even since you know you you left here in 2016. But what kind of impact does that have? And also, what kind of impact would a guy like Bezos, who has basically unlimited resources, have on their ability to create a better place for players to work and train here in D.C.? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. You know, obviously, when I got here, um, it was kind of unequivocally, you know, got, free agents would come in and say, man, this is, you know, the worst. Yeah. Like, we didn't really have, like, a wet room, you know, where you've got your cold and hot tubs. Um, we had a hot tub, but it was, like, you know, from 
the eighties or the, uh, the early nineties, late eighties. And we had a steam room and it was very, very from that same time period. And so over the course of the last 10 years or so, they've done some renovating. They've, they've made the weight room much larger. Like at the time it could barely accommodate, you know, a 50 man roster, which is not exactly what you want to do. And it really limits what you can do from like a lifting standpoint. Um, they've added a wet room since then they've added sleep pods and a recovery area to the building, which is all great. You know, that's all good. Yeah. But I do think that the, the facilities compared to some of the stuff that's out there are limited, you know, and I do think like those, you know, we got to mention the kitchen. I think in my playing career, you know, after they brought in the new chef there in 2013 or 14, that became the best food I ever had in the NFL second, probably to San Francisco, right. Or right. Like in the same ballpark, you know, so they've done some things that are good, but I think because of the facility, because the age of the facility, because of the size of the facility, it does, it does kind of negatively impact free agents desire to sign with the organization um, for whatever reason, you know, and I think uh, that's changing slowly, but I think, you know, when you have somebody who's willing to write big checks and do big things, like just as an example, you know, when, uh, when Mike got here, there was no indoor practice facility. There's no mm -hmm. bubble. And, um, and I remember, you know, we would practice like come hell or high water outside on the grass we practiced on that crazy Astro turf out there, you know, when right. it was snowing. Which hasn't been used forever at this Yeah, point. and it's, it's just taking up space. Yeah, it's really outdated and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and Mike basically had to like kind of pull a power move to get Dan to put it in because he's like, this is something that makes, that gives us a competitive advantage. And so obviously Dan was reluctant to do that. He's running a business. He's trying to make smart business decisions. And he felt that was not necessary for making smart business decisions. And I think part of that is, you know, like the team was very good and they never had a bubble. You know, when they won their straight three Super Bowls, they never had a bubble. But my, Mike's point was kind of like now in today's NFL with the NFL players, the way they are, you need an indoor facility. And so that was like a big kind of, you know, butting of heads from what I understand in terms of getting that done. And um, and again, like if you have someone who's more reticent to get that done, I think it, it bodes well. You know, it's it just it's when, when people are willing to invest in the product, which in this case is the players pay for free agents and all those types of things like it 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 should pay dividends long term obviously there are certain certain situations where that doesn't work i think denver right now is a perfect example you know you go out you kind of break the bank for russell wilson and then that decision doesn't look like it's going to bear the fruit that you thought so you got to be sound with your talent evaluation and hiring the right talent evaluators which again this is interesting when you get a guy who's not really familiar with football and bezos coming in because how do you make a decision about a football hire like there's right. no easy way to do that. It's not like in the interview process, you don't even really know what it is. You know what I mean? You right. don't even know what good football is. So again, you, there you have, I, I think what the NFL does though, is they have, sorry to interrupt, but like they have, they have resources that can help with that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like you've got to hire the right president. Right. And then that guy's got to do all the rest of the good stuff. But like, how do you hire the right president if you've never been in this business before? Yeah, it'd be like, I don't know, to make like a weird comparison. It'd be like if I was opening some type of restaurant and I had to hire a chef. Like, I don't know anything about that. I don't know what makes a good chef. I don't know what chef fits my my restaurant model, my style. I don't want a five-star chef if I'm opening up a competitor at Chipotle. Right. I don't need that level of chef. I don't need that level of organization. But if I am opening up a five star restaurant, like I want somebody very good. And how do I distinguish based on styles, based on whatever? So I think that's again, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the new ownership. And, um, you know, if he's got a resource like that, I mean, I'd just be fascinated how you go about getting into an industry with little to no background in that industry and trying to make 
competitive decisions, you know, so that'll be interesting. But again, the money to your point, I think would be very, um, very advantageous. Well, then the last part of the two though, is the, on the football side, right? The development of players I think is huge just from a pure yeah. facility standpoint. Like when you look at what they have here compared to what they have, like I'll use Chicago as an example, cause I've used this one before they have the, the virtual classroom. I don't know oh, if they yeah. had that when you were there. Um, no, they, had it, they had it in Houston though when I was there. Okay, so it's it's a place that or a thing that they have in a lot of places now at this yeah. point. But like basically, you can project film onto a wall, and the classroom is like a mini turf field, and you can yeah. walk through stuff. Right. And for some players, that's going to fit their learning style. And if you have a player that learns that way, and you don't have that resource available, that player's not going to be as successful in your system, in your scheme, in your program, because they're just not being taught to in a way that that works for them. And so I think that is a huge loss. And you look at some of the, the development issues that you've had with players over the years that are supremely physically talented. Like, did they just miss the mental evaluation or did they not have the resources available to get the most out of that player? Sometimes it, it can be a little bit of both, but you might as well mess around and find out with Bezos's money and give that, give your coaches every resource available uh, to figure out like, Hey, all right, we, uh, it was the player. We messed up the evaluation. We yeah. shouldn't have brought that guy in because uh, we taught him every which way from Sunday, and and he he could not figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. I think I think with the the digital classroom, I don't necessarily think it speaks like a different learning style necessarily, but I think it does make your ability to go through multiple plays more efficient. And what I mean by that is like instead of having to get a scout team lined up and like draw the cards, you can just take the film and like throw like clip forty two yeah. from the New Orleans game. Let's put that up there and walk through the blitz. And so. That is um, that is a nice resource from a time management, from the coach's standpoint, from a personnel standpoint in terms of, you know, just having bodies available. Uh, so, yeah, I think those types of things are, are great. And right now, I think one of the issues is there's not really a spot for it in the in the current, current setup. Facility, facility, right. but, um, yeah, but you know, I think, you know, player development, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, like that is so huge to building a roster and an organization. Um, but you know, like, how do you do it now with the new CBA? And that's a, that's a conversation for another day. But I think that's a fascinating, fascinating point. Yeah. Well, it would help, too, if you have the Mac, you talk about the efficiency, you maximize your weight room stuff, too. Like, they don't really have a lot of space to do some of the things that other teams. I, I was watching this YouTube video yesterday of the Vikings facility and like they have a speed hill. Um, yeah. You know, they don't, yeah. they don't have like, that. Look at, Michigan. Um, look at Michigan. They have like power steps. Oh, well, I mean, they have all sorts of crazy stuff. But yeah, well, the but, colleges are just out of control because they don't have to pay the players. So they spend all the money on that stuff. But like there are some NFL outfits now that have kind of college. It's weird that I'm saying this, but like they have college caliber weight rooms. Yeah. And that's going to help you get the most out of players. Like, again, we're talking about a league where the margins are very small. And, you know, if you can help a player get a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, keep a guy healthy um, because you have some modality or resource that another team doesn't have, then you're maximizing your chances of winning when it comes to Sundays in the fall. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. But I, again, I go back to like, you could spend all the money you want. And this is, again, I, I know this isn't the point, but you, you only have access, you know, as a strength coach, you only have access to the player for such a limited window mm -hmm. now because of the CBA. So how much tissue change, how much resource, you know, you can't you can't enact a ton of change in two months like it just isn't feasible especially when they're taking a ton of time off and all that kind of things but your point is still sound you know what i mean like getting more tools available you know even just from like a data monitoring standpoint like hiring yeah. an extra person on the staff like 100 right like the, the I mean, that's the, a huge huge element i don't know how their staff here i mean i know their data analytics department on the football side is one of the smallest in the league but like, I don't right. know how their strength staff sizes up, how their their nutrition staff sizes up, 
um, you know, their quality control coaches, like other teams with a hundred coaches running around, uh, maybe not a hundred, but there are teams with definitely more. And there's probably some teams with less, but when, when a coach, a GM, a team president can go to the owner and be like, Hey, we need more. And the owner doesn't think twice about it. Um, that's, that's definitely appealing. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the data analytics here, they have one of the brightest guys in the NFL doing that, but he's doing it by himself. So how could he allocate his time and his resources in terms of developing new methodologies and new systems if he had just an intern, another person on staff that could crunch the numbers and print the reports and do that kind of stuff? So those are, to me, those are the more impactful things, like just staff size. You know, I think someone, uh, we were talking about this on PFF, you know, how you are limited by the salary cap, but you're not limited Mm -hmm. in terms of coach's salary. Like You can pay as many people as you want to be on staff. And there are precedents set. But I think about like, man, like why have one quality control guy when you could have two and just Mm -hmm. split the work, divide that up. They can get to more, they can get to more film. They can do more things. They can work on more projects, but for whatever reason, be fresher because they're not in the building till 11 o'clock at night and back at 5 a.m. every day. Like that, and and like, that's not just looking out for their quality of life. Like that's going to make them better at the things they do because they will not be exhausted all the time, which is generally the life of a football coach. Yeah. So I think that to me, that's where. The again, the facilities. I think you can get by with what they have now. I think they they would be it would be great if you could improve them, obviously. But I think the staff, the paying for the coaches, free agents, all those things that that's where the the ownership I think becomes a little bit more significant. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on, and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about: basketball, now golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time, baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. I'm Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. All right, Logan, let's dive into the tape from Sunday. Let's start with, let's start on the struggle bus. Let's start with the offense. Yeah, okay. Um, Big picture takeaways. Where do you you start? Um, It was, it was another, like, not, not great 17 point performance. Uh, Why did, why did it happen? And I think, I don't know. I don't want to like oversell, but it might have been the worst performance by a quarterback this year for the team. And I think people look at the stat line and say, oh, look how well he played. Look at the touchdown. But even the touchdown, the first touchdown to Curtis, like it's the ball should should be thrown. And so he did some things. um, You know, we, we, we were texting after the game, sending clips back and forth. And it just there was so many times where there's people open or it seems like he's making the wrong read or he's not taking what the defense is giving him. He's trying to press too hard to make a big play. And I think um, that's really challenging, you know, especially like against Green Bay, like he struggled early on, no doubt about it, but he settled in and he elevated the offense. He just took and was consistent and 
and was able to, again, elevate the offensive line and get the ball to his playmakers. And I felt like that was not who he was yesterday. He was pressing too hard or on Sunday. He was pressing too much to kind of make a big play. And I don't think that's where he's at his best. I think you got to kind of walk some type. We've talked about it, right? you got to find the team has to walk a tight rope in terms of how much they want to give him. And he himself has to walk and say, these are my limitations. I need to manage the game more than I'm trying to do right now, as opposed to pushing the ball down the field. The other thing that was a little frustrating is like, even on some RPO stuff, um, he's not making the correct read. He's not putting those running backs in the offensive line in the best position to be successful. And that's frustrating because when you are a team like this, the amount of kind of what I'll call mental mistakes or execution mistakes was just so high offensively that again, it, it doesn't, there's no conceivable way to have a successful result when you're making mistakes like they were in terms of, you know, mistargeting runs and that's not on him. He doesn't target the runs. The center does. Right. Right. You know, but making mistakes on RPOs, making mistakes on zone read, th- those things that are elevating the running game, taking easy throws, you know, manipulating defenses in a specific way. You, you know what I mean? Like all of those things just seem to stack up for him. Uh, being late to certain throws because he's trying to push the ball down the, th- the field. And that and that does add up. And I think that's um, just a lack of detail generally offensively is the thing that stuck out to me. And I, and I think this was a game where I thought they could – play better specifically in the passing game i think i knew they were gonna have a hard time running the football because if we talked about it like minnesota's they've got a type on the inside there that's very very physical very very good very very big and it's gonna be hard to run the football because they're all good at winning individual individual matchups um but i felt like the scheme didn't support the offensive line necessarily um in terms of running the football and then i just felt like in at the basic level of execution of the passing game it was not good enough and um that's tough. That's tough to deal with. And hopefully they can get that corrected going in against Philly. Cause I do think the defense played well enough to win this football game. Yeah. So with Taylor, let's start there and dive in a little bit deeper. He's got a little bit of an angel devil situation where it's like angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. And the problem is the devil actually is the right play just often enough that he listens to it. Right. And so it's like, Hey man, take the easy one. I don't know. If I do this crazy thing, it might work out. And he throws the ball to Curtis in triple coverage. The player is definitely going to intercept the ball or at the very least knock it down, runs into the ref. Somehow Curtis catches it between the two other guys. He spins into the end zone untouched. And it's like, wow, 49-yard touchdown. And subconsciously, even if it's subconsciously, and Scott, as soon as he gets back over to the bench, is like, Taylor, don't ever do that again. He's got the, hey, it worked, man, in the back of his head. I also and think, and like, I think that probably sometimes influences decision making. No, I mean, 100%. I mean, 100%. Like, I think you said it like he starts feeling himself, and you can tell he's starting to feel himself. And on that play, the, the throw, the read, at least the way I see it, right, is you've got a dig on the left and you've got a post on the right. Okay. The, the, you're reading the backside safety. So if the backside safety jumps the dig, who's tearing in this case, you throw the post. Like, that's the rule right? Throw the post because the post is going to come over right behind the safety. Boom. Okay. And if you look at it, that's kind of how it's going to play out, right? The player that bumps into the ref is the backside safety. So obviously he is deep as heck. And Terry is standing open with probably 15 yards of separation around him because the safety busted the coverage. So if, if I'm Scott, I'm like, what are you actually looking at right now? Because the thing that I think you should be looking at, again, I'm, I'm an analyst and 
like I don't know what's going on in the room, but based on the on the play design and, and other offenses I've been in, the ball should it should be a no brainer that ball should be going to the dig, and that's a twenty five yard gain, and you feel much more comfortable and com- confident about his process and what he's looking at, and for him just to say YOLO and launch that sucker, I'm like, we're in a close game, we can't afford to turn the ball over, and that and again it, it works out for you by some kind of miracle of serendipity but the process was not correct and if i'm a coach that drives me absolutely insane right and that's why i hear you when you say he's got to manage himself better i don't think he's capable like that's just so? not that's just not in his dna and and by the way i don't know i hear you i don't know i agree with you though because i want him to play with a little, like, I don't want to feel like I'm restraining him. I want him to go be a playmaker where he's at his best. And then I think it's my job as the coach to manage him. It's my job to not give him opportunities to make the big mistake and to coach him through the 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 areas where he might. Like, hey, man, really be careful about this. Or remember you're reading the backside safety. Like, give him that. But I don't want him playing conservative because then you don't get the upside of him. Then you don't get the the some of the runs. You don't get some of the scrambles. You don't get some of the stuff off schedule you get just a generic, not very good quarterback who doesn't make the special Taylor Heineke plays and doesn't give you that special Taylor Heineke energy that definitely elevates the people around him. So yeah. I don't know where you where you fall on that, but to me, that's kind of how I, I would read out the, the human management element of it. Yeah, I agree. I think you want, I think you do want him making plays, right? But you also don't want him, it's, you don't want him like to, to, to your analogy, you don't want him listening to the devil too frequently. Mm-hmm. Right. And so obviously there's a responsibility by the coaching staff to kind of mitigate that right in terms of play selection and play call. But then there's also a responsibility by the player to say, I need to be aware of the situation in the game and what the heck is actually happening. So, I mean, I look at the last play, the interception, for example, right? They're running, he runs a little snag to Dax Mill. Um, they've got like a big box fade and Dax, it, you can tell is the first read. You go one, and then you go to the basic who's Logan. And is the basic open? Yes. But is the snag open? 1,000%. So should I even be able to get to the second read? No. And based on the situation, based on the down and distance, do I really need to be forcing a play here? And um, and the answer to in my in my estimation is no, right? Because then it's right. third and six, third and four, maybe if Dax breaks a tackle, right? And we're in a down and distance that we can handle offensively instead of throwing an interception. And obviously, the interception is the worst worst outcome there. But even if that ball is incomplete, it's third and 11. And are you going to be able to overcome that? Have you flipped field position at all? Understanding who you are, understanding the situation, I think is something that's frustrating. And is the ball there to Logan? Yes. But he shouldn't know that based on his progression. I think he said that after the game, and that's good awareness by him. But I need him to have that awareness in the moment, at the time. And we, and like we, we shared some clips back and forth earlier. And that happened in this game specifically, more than I would like, you know, that he's kind of pushing through stuff. He's not taking easy stuff. He's trying to press for that big play. And that happens with running backs. That happens with receivers. The problem with a quarterback is that it impacts the game in a more dramatic way. Yeah. And it's something that I used to like, he had uh, some stuff in this game when you, you were sending me some of these clips that Kirk used to have all the time when he was here, where you just be like, dude, you're looking right at it. Yeah. Like your eyes are in the right place. Why didn't you throw the ball? Yeah. Like, what did you not like about the look where, I mean, his feet, like there, there was one in particular where he turns down two good throws in a row. Like his first options, a more shallow concept. I can't remember which one it was. The second yeah. one was, I think a dig to Terry. 
or a basic to Terry. And like, he looks at the first one, his feet are in the right place. His eyes are in the right place. He turns it down and you're like, okay. And then oh, he yeah. resets, he resets on his hitch and the deeper ones there. And you're like, hallelujah. All right, yeah. we'll take this mistake all day. And then he doesn't like that one either. And then he yeah. does, I don't remember what he does on the play. I think it's it was, an incubation uh, sack, something. Um, scissors concept, right? So you get a corner. Yeah. And then you get a post, right? And they they do a really good job of covering that up. And the corner on the outside drops under the corner, under under the uh, under the the corner route. The defensive player drops under the corner route. Right. So you have the the quick out. The, yeah, the shallow cross is coming directly into his vision, and it's right there. And it's like that's the progression. You say no to the corner. You say yes to the shallow. If they take away the shallow, then you go to the dig on the backside. The shallow is open, so just throw it to him, right? It's right. a first down. Curtis is going to run for first down. Then you work to the basic, which is also open, but that's a tougher throw because you got to throw with great anticipation there. Like Drew Brees was the master of that throw, and I think he ends up taking a sack. So it's kind of like, why? You know, why? Right. why like, why? I don't understand. Maybe there's something in your vision. You know, you're on the all 22, so you're a little bit removed. It's hard to see, but it seems like he sees it. Why not just? take it i don't know right and he did that on the bow concept i know diami dropped it so they're running bow which is a basic by uh the tight end in this case logan thomas the receiver comes and sits down and basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the middle linebacker to attach to the sit route and you're gonna hit the basic right behind it the linebacker drops out he's like i don't want yeah, anything to do with that yeah he, he goes and covers the basic and so if the second he drops out of there throw the sit throw it right now but you wait a beat. And then again, like as a receiver, it's really interesting. It's really interesting dynamic with receivers is <clears throat> when you wait a beat, the receiver's rhythm is off. And I know that sounds insane because it's a sit route, but all of a sudden your internal clock's going, oh shoot, he's going to throw the basic. And then he comes back to you. And then you're kind of, you're a little out of sorts. And I see it happen all the time when the quarterback is off rhythm, it gets the receiver off, off rhythm. And I'm not saying he Diami dropped the ball because of that, but you can see it's a little, it flummoxes Diami a little bit. And right. Diami 1000% should catch that ball. But also, if you throw it when you're supposed to throw it, that might be a first down as well because you can split the two defenders and maybe get, you know, eight yards and get you in a good situation. So, those types of things, he just seemed like he was constantly looking for a bigger play instead of just playing in the context of the offense. Then someone asked me, Oh, do you think we should fire Scott? If I'm Scott, I go into Ron's office the next day and I say, Look at this. Look at how many opportunities he passed up on. And these are not like overly challenging throws necessarily. And and, he, and if I'm Scott, I'm saying like, uh, we've talked about this. Like, Ron, you've been in the meeting when we've talked about it. So what am I, what else am I supposed to do? Like, that's just Taylor so, not yeah. playing at a super high level. I think, and people are allowed to do this. I don't want to say like Taylor should be cut or anything like that. People right. have these games. But to me, the reason the offense struggled yesterday, a lot of it, Look, look at Taylor, you know what I mean? Because of right. some of these decisions. So there's, I think, two then questions off of that. One, what could they have done to help him? And yeah. two, like, if we had a lot of the same stuff to say about Carson, like, is it unlucky with two straight quarterbacks that this is a thing that happens? Or is there, does that actually right. uh, go back to the common denominator that, like, Scott and this offensive staff are clearly not getting through what needs to happen and, and the players aren't don't have an understanding of, of what they need to execute on given plays? It's hard. The NFL is really hard. I it, And part of it is, yes, Taylor is, I think I, the way I started my show yesterday, uh, the first thing in my first intent was, like, Taylor's a an average to maybe slightly above average decision maker with possibly the worst arm in the NFL. And that is just going to mean that some days he's he's not on it. 
And that's yeah. what happens when you're average. It's not like you you miss 50% of the stuff every single week. It's some weeks you're you're 90% and some weeks you're 40. And he had a 40% yeah. week. Yeah. And and so I think that's part of it. And then you get to the, the running game, which we can get to in a second, of like what else could they have potentially done to help him out a little bit and make the offense function better. Um, Minnesota's obviously great running the ball, so we'll get there. But like, is there like on the teaching side of it um, or, or – the, the kind of through threads of execution, poor execution, does that reflect back on the OC or is it just uh, the nature of the game and, and especially with these two particular quarterbacks? Yeah, and I kind of felt like this was a very like Carson Wentz game by Heineke. You know, Carson Wentz, when you watch him, he's always trying to press for something down the field a little bit more. And that makes sense. He's got a big arm. And I felt like Taylor was doing the same thing today. So instead of elevating the offensive line, getting the check downs, getting your back, which he did against Indianapolis, which he did against Green Bay, he just was like, I'm going to press a little bit more. And that pressing, again, put a little bit more pressure on the offensive line and it puts a little bit more pressure on this offense. So I think to your point, like when Taylor is at his best, he knows this offense really well, which we saw against Green Bay, we saw against Indy, and he knows where to go with the football quickly, right? I just saw this thing on Instagram, Byron Leftwich talking about what makes Tom Brady great. And he, Byron Leftwich was basically saying, like, Tom Brady never gets bored taking the easy throw. And it's so funny when you watch Tom Brady, it is boring because it's like if he has any doubt about something, he's like, I'm just going to check the ball down. And that that's why his backs, that's why the underneath receivers, the slot receivers do so well in his offense because – that's who gets the ball most of the time. And he just is – so like on that scissors concept, you better believe the second it got a, even a second muddy, a little bit muddy, the ball is going to the receiver, and the receiver is going to run for 15 yards. And he's going to mm -hmm. pat his own stats. They're going to, And then they get another set of downs. They've got their explosive play off of a check down. And so I think there is a, a, a skill and, and an elite quality to someone who can just do that down in and down out and make the right decision. You know, and I think that's something that Taylor did well against Green Bay specifically, like especially in the second half. He just did that at a very high level. And then all of a sudden, you know, not so much this week. And that and this is the result. Like when you don't make those decisions, when you don't make those plays, the offense looks very stagnant outside of a couple big plays. And he did do some nice stuff. He had an excellent throw and a dig to Terry. Obviously the touchdown throw, we talked about that. Not great, but the one to Dax Mills I thought was excellent. Excellent yeah, that by was Dax. Great throw. Really understanding the concept and where the coverage was. Great job. You know, so he did some good things, but I think on the whole, there wasn't enough good. And he left some of these opportunities on the field. And again, when the offense is walking this kind of mar this 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 razor's edge, you got to make these easy throws. You got to make these easy decisions become they because because they become huge issues if you don't make them. So then you get to the running game and yeah. uh, my, my favorite pet peeve, which is the lack of involvement for Curtis Samuel, who is at this point, their best runner yeah. um, gets one carry for 16 yards with like four and a half minutes to go in the first quarter. I don't yeah. understand how that goes that well. And that guy doesn't get another touch, um, especially when you're, you're struggling to run the ball. How did the run game struggles and the lack of ability to do anything off of the run game in general, hurt this offense and what did you make of their run game plan again against a very good Minnesota run defense like again not surprised that they had some struggles but three you know sub three five a carry for both your main backs and your your best ball carrier getting one carry like that's not a that's not a valiant effort in any way yeah I think the thing that becomes frustrating is you know Minnesota is going to play a light light box we talked about on the show we talked about the pregame show they are a Vic Fangio defense. They want to allocate more resources to coverage, right? And they do that by playing down in the run game, down in, in terms of 
run stopping personnel. So, you know, I think Scott Turner deserves a lot of credit because if you go back and watch, there's a lot of looks where they are plus in the run game, which is excellent. That's exactly where you want to be. You want to scheme up defenses to challenge rules and make sure that you have more blockers than they have people to stop the run. And I think that like on the Curtis Sammy run, for example, I love the play design there. They bring Curtis into the backfield. They don't match with the same kind of personnel because they're treating him like a receiver, right? And then you have you have six blockers for six defenders, and you get hats on hats with great angles. And that's something again that I think is maybe overlooked when you talk about um, you know the run game is how easy is it for this double team to get to the guy at the second level, the linebacker or the safety in this case. And oftentimes people say, you know, oh, the double team will get there to move this guy, but I need to make sure the angles are conducive to the offensive lineman getting leverage on the second level player. So on that first play, they do an excellent job of that, right? They, you know, they're running tight zone to the front side. Gibson runs back. It pulls the backside linebacker out of the count. So the double team can really sit. Norwell and Leto do an excellent job of just moving that and building a wall. Trey Turner, Larson on the front side do an excellent job because the linebacker has removed himself from the box almost of getting great movement. And there's a huge hole right there. And then Curtis does an excellent job in space. They were able to get stuff like that frequently throughout the game. Um, But the issue to me and to my eye is that they would run this beautiful, another example, they run this beautiful moat, like same split back set tight ends in the backfield. Um, uh, Brian Robinson's running back. They motion Armani in. They kick out the backside end. Logan's going to lead up on the first linebacker off the ball in the box. It's perfect. But when the motion comes in the box, the linebacker shift over and the safety comes in. They're still plus. They, this, this should still be a home run, like a 30-yard gain. I'm not exaggerating. But they don't change the box count to account for the safety that's in the box. So as a result, the double teams are out leveraged. So they can't sit on the double team. So there's no movement. And then when they get to the second level, they start pushing their players towards the running back. And that's not the offensive line's fault. That's simply saying, oh, we have an extra black. We have a fullback in the game. We don't have to block that guy. Let's block these two dudes way over here and sit on these double teams and have excellent leverage on these blocks. That happens more times than I care to admit. And that's a really big frustration because it, it devalues the running back positions, the Gibson, Brian Robinson. And then on the RPO stuff, you texted me this. I agree with this. You're not executing the RPOs at a high level. We mentioned being plus in the run game. Oh, when, God. When you, have so someone, when you have someone you're reading and he attacks the run, you have to throw the bubble. You have to throw the bubble. Or else the, play, the whole point of the RPO doesn't work. So you end up with a free player in the hole because you didn't read the, the person correctly. And so the best run of the second half is to Gibson on an RPO where he reads it correctly. But on the first two RPOs of the game, you read it incorrectly. And so those are lost opportunities for 10-yard gains. There are two, three-yard gain because Gibson's running into a guy and spinning off a dude and, you know, B-Rob's doing the same thing. But in a game where you have a limited number of opportunities, 64 offensive snaps or whatever it is, every one of we just made we just mentioned five plays in the run game that they screwed up. I don't want to say screwed up, that they didn't execute at the highest level, right? And that happens, but that's five opportunities. Out of how many runs did they have? And that, that's not even all of them. Let's say they did it on half the runs. Like that is not a winning percentage, right? And then we mentioned the couple of snafus in the past game. You're not maximizing your offense when you have these little hiccups. And that's the level of execution that needs to be, that, that's required for a good offense in the NFL. Right. Yeah, the RPO stuff, I didn't realize how many of them they ran until I watched it back, um, which is something I need to be better about watching in real time moving forward. But they, 
there's just so often where you all of a sudden look on the backside and you see a bubble or you see there was one where Milne runs like this quick out and it's if he gets the sideline there it's it's a 30 yard gain like all the other receipts it's it's two on one so you have one on one the receivers just got to block the the corner taylor's got to flip it out there and then Milne just gets to run in free space until yeah. the safety you know realizes the ball's not in the running back's hand and, and turns around and chases him down and you know those kinds of plays even when they're not going to be a 30 yard gain if it's if if an rpo gets 7 and it's basically a run play yeah. That's a great run. Yeah. Like give me second and three all day. Um, and, and that that kind of inefficiency. Cause I think a lot of times like we use that word, like they need to be more efficient offensively. Right. And it's like, well, what does that mean? You can't magically like create yards that you've gained. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not it's not like you switch on an efficiency mode and use a little less power, but it's like, it's do you just maximize what the defense gives you? Do yeah. you take as often as possible 100 percent of the defense, what they give you, as opposed to having to do something spectacular to create yardage or get lucky and have a, a DB fall into a ref to score a touchdown. Like that's not, that's not good offensive right. planning. That's not good offensive process. Just take what the defense gives you. And if you do that on a regular basis, you can win in this league and you can move the ball and you can, you can put up pretty big numbers. And I think, I think the, this conversation would look drastically different if the defense was not playing well, but they have been playing well. They've been playing yeah. really well. So you just need, offensively to not a not screw it up and b be efficient enough where you can score 24 points in a game like that's really what it comes down to if you can score 24 points you're going to be competitive most games right and if the defensive gets a turnover can you capitalize out get it to 27 excellent we're, we're cooking with gas at this point the, the problem is like you said they are not consistently executing the scheme seemingly to a high enough standard that they can sustain offensive drives. Like that's right. that's essentially what it boils down to. And that's been a systematic issue since week one, basically. You know, I don't know. Like maybe the second half of the Green Bay game, you could say they did a good job or they've had spurts, but I mean right. I would even include last year. I would say the first year that Alex was here um, yeah. and playing. Or, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff that happened in the first part of that year between Dwayne and Kyle. And then ultimately you get to Alex and Alex was more efficient. Um, right. Even if he wasn't prolific by any stretch More of the imagination, yeah. right? Like Alex was someone who was efficient offensively and you saw that turned into wins, even though the stats didn't look that much different. I think that's the secret sauce to Alex Smith that I never appreciated until I covered him more, more consistently is like, Oh, that's why that guy wins games yeah. because he sustains drives. The defense plays better. Like it, it, it's not coincidence. You know, one of the things that stood out to me is like they had a run where they're in a five, the defense is in a five-man front with two linebackers, and you only have six blockers. They call that a jam front. Everybody's covered up on the inside. Another thing that, like, Kyle would do in that situation in terms of efficiency, remember, you only get, you know, let's say 25 to 30 times to run the football a game. You can't screw one of them up. And I don't want to run one into a bad look. Is he would have that same run called with a pass. And so that's another thing that is hard to kind of negotiate. I know this happened one time, maybe two times in the game. But if you're if, you, if if the defense presents a look that you don't like to run the football into, do you have a, a a can game to your run system? And it doesn't look like that. So again, in terms of targets, you know, giving your guys opportunities to run in advantageous looks, like that stuff, I think is again, it just doesn't show up on a week to week basis. And I think it's again, it's to your point, it doesn't lead to the best offensive product. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I, I mean, I think that's a great point. And um, it's something that Kevin, by the way, praised Kirk uh, for after the game on the Minnesota side of things, uh, of how he consistently gets them in the right play yeah. and, and does a lot of stuff beyond just throwing the football to, to Justin Jefferson uh, on a regular basis. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Give us the download and and then tell a friend and be like, hey, this podcast is great. You should check it out. Hey, thanks. Thanks for doing that, pal, buddy, friend. Uh, All right. Let's give the defense their flowers because they deserve it. Um, This team has played so well on that side of the ball. Uh, If the offense does not give away another short field, like you're talking about holding a really good Minnesota team under 20 points likely, uh, and and you play well enough to win if your offense can score 20 um, or 21 in this particular case, based off the math. What is going so well for this team, and how do they clean up some of the stuff that had presented opportunities uh, in a couple of previous weeks that just weren't taken advantage of? And it, it really took some spectacular plays for Minnesota to beat them. Yeah, I think the thing about Minnesota, and we talked about this on the pregame show, and we talked about this last week, is that they they are very... I don't say vanilla because they run a good offense, but it's very conventional. That's a better word, conventional offense. And I don't think you're going to see a whole bunch of craziness from them. Like if you look at the big plays, at least over the last couple of weeks, they've come off of kind of unusual stuff, like the reverses to Paris Campbell, the screen to Paris Campbell, you know, um, the uh, the runs, the quarterback runs versus uh, Chicago, all those types of things were, uh, you know, you know, ways that they were able to cultivate big plays. And since uh, William Jackson III has been out of the lineup. They've done a really nice job in the back end of eliminating just straight shot plays and free runners. So um, I think that's those are the things that really stick out to me as kind of the biggest shift, right? You're getting elevated play from the linebackers. You know, Bostic, I think, had a really nice game yesterday. Was it perfect? No. But does he come in as your third middle linebacker, call the defense and do a nice job? Yeah. Cam Curl, Bobby McCain. Derek Forrest, all those guys have just been a nice inter- interchangeable chess piece that you can play. You can play, you know, three safety dime defense on first down and they know what to do and they know where to line up. The defensive line specifically, I mean, gosh, Allen and Payne are playing at like they're 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 the best defensive line combination in the NFL, you know, in terms of interior interior pass rushers and interior first and second down play. Like they're playing that good right now. Sweats had a quiet game yesterday, but is very impactful. Uh, James Smith Williams does an excellent job and you get the great rotational pieces there on the edge. Like they're just playing at a high level. They understand who they are defensively. They understand their identity. I think that's a huge element of it is that they're not pressing. They're not trying to be outside of the box necessarily. So I think all that stuff is, is just fantastic to see. And then they, they were in weeks past, they weren't making plays. Now they are making plays. Like, I mean, the play at the end of the half, you know, for Benjamin St. Juice to knock the ball out, and then um, Johnson to run over and make that play. Like, holy cow, man. Like, that's that's higher-level stuff for sure. And I think that's why that's why they're doing well. Yeah, the propensity for them to make big plays after they have big mistakes is really spectacular. Um, you know, they give up a big run. They go force a fumble. That that ball that they give up to Thielen to, to even make Minnesota scoring in that short of a time possible, it's a bad mistake. Like, that, that's a bu- the kind of bust that you haven't seen from them in a while where Thielen yeah. is just running wide open in space. And they come back and they make the play. Um, yeah. You know, Benjamin St. Juice does a phenomenal job. And it's hard to say like, hey, St. Juice was awesome. He gave up seven catches for 113 and a touchdown. But like, he's there and Justin Jefferson's just great. Like Jefferson might be the best receiver in the league. 
And and yeah. so you're going to give up some stuff, especially when they target him 13 times in a game, which is uh, not only what they did on Sunday, but what they do seemingly every Sunday, yeah. um, which is part of their philosophy uh, that they have there in Minnesota. So um, I think that's the really impressive thing. And what you kind of take away or what I take away is, yes, Minnesota got the better of them ultimately in terms of the scoreboard, but it took greatness from Minnesota. I mean, the Dalvin Cook touchdown, it's a one-handed phenomenal yeah. catch. I think what's killer is the one area where, where maybe they could clean up a little bit is the penalties. Um, Ron talked about the, or he didn't like the, the PI call on the St. Juice uh, yeah. or mean, on the, on the pick six. It's, it's PI. It's, it's yeah. not even question. Like he grabs him by the shoulder pads. He turns the receiver. Can't do that. And and some of the situations where they they extend drives by a penalty where, you know, Minnesota had a couple of these as well. And it felt like bad luck. Like you get a sack and a guy's thumb gets caught in, in Taylor's face mask. Like, yeah, I, I'm not going to, if I'm the defensive coach in that meeting, I'm like, Hey, let's try to keep our hands a little lower. But like, I know that's yeah. bad luck. Sorry, man. Um, being super handsy on a, on a receiver and getting your hands up on the shoulder pads. Like that's something where I'm a little more upset as a coach in a meeting. And St. Juice is a young player again, guarding the best receiver in the NFL. Um, he's fighting his, his, his face off. I, there's only so mad I'm going to get, but I do think that is something where they have had a couple of penalties that have really hurt them, but that's also the league. The other guys are getting paid too. part of the reason you commit a penalty is because the other guy's doing something great and you're right. trying to hold on. Sometimes you get away with it. Sometimes you don't overall. I think this defense deserves so much credit, so much, you know, so much applause for how they're playing. And especially considering they know they have to play like this to give them a chance to win. Right. And that's got to be hard mentally. And I do wonder how many more weeks they can, they can do this right. and kind of keep that up. And obviously they have a massive test in, right. in the Eagles offense coming up on a Monday night. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. Like it just, for them to come out like against, even against like Chicago, for example, for them to do what they did in those games and kind of stand up in certain situations, like they, they're, they're going to have some adrenal fatigue here before you know it. And they're going to have a bad game. And, you know, they're going to, this team's going to get blown out, quite frankly, because they've been able to keep it close and competitive each week. And did they have a whole bunch? Of, I feel like that was the only major penalty. I feel like there was back. one more. I mean, obviously on special teams, the Ridgeway penalty, which for Ron to defend is just brutal. Like it's so, yeah, what's the obvious, rule? Do we know the rule on that? Yeah, you can't make contact with the snapper, uh, basically. Well, or you well, can't, you can't, down or is it at all? Um, I remember there was I mean, a, definitely they've gone through iterations of this rule is why. Yeah, I asked, definitely so. when his head is down, which is when right. the contact happens. And I don't think like like if you make if you like sideswipe him a little bit, yeah. you're fine. But you can't make any contact head on. And yeah. Reg, Ridgeway's like hip crotch area bowls into the guy's helmet, and knocks him over. Like it's it's so blatantly a penalty that I can't believe that Ron defended it. Not only the day of, but the day after watching it on film. He said like, it wasn't it, a penalty, or what did he say? Ron, yeah, Ron was like, he's just trying to execute the technique that we we teach him. Like, I didn't think it was a penalty, and it's like, so that is a technique, right? You can't you can't line up directly over the center, but they'll right to, to prevent the fake. Basically, is they'll cross the other a gap, and right. most you're not supposed to touch him, but it's kind of one of those things like you're not supposed to hold when you run block, but it kind right. of happens all the time. And John Kime texted me about it because I was talking to John because the rule is still a little fuzzy to me, but Kime was like, look at the play before. And like basically yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. Well, Minnesota lost their minds on a field goal. I don't remember it was extra point. No, it was the field goal before that they, and they, they told the refs like, Hey man, like he, they knocked over our long snapper. You can't yeah. do that. And right. so they were on alert and, and, you know, maybe, maybe Washington didn't see the, the Minnesota coaches calling attention to it and go to Ridgeway and be like, Hey buddy, you need to be careful. They're going to be looking at this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Minnesota 
had said on the previous one, like, hey, man, like, what what the hell? And yeah. uh, sure enough, they were looking for it because they should have been. It was a penalty. Yeah. And that's why it just, like, it's hard to put that on Ridgeway if he's doing what they ask. And if they're asking him to commit a penalty. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it, again, it's like, it's kind of like, it's in that gray, weird NFL rule. Like, if the official wants to call it, they could probably call it, like, I don't say every play, but they can call it more frequently than they do. Right, if they really wanted to enforce that rule, they could definitely call it more. It's like it's like you know how they go through through fits where they're calling like offensive pi, mm-hmm. and it's like every single play is an offensive right. or D or defensive pi. Excuse me, that's kind of in the same realm. There's a, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. I and, think there's wiggle room in the rule. I don't think there was wiggle room on this one. He knocked so him I, over with his hip, like he think, hit him in the helmet. But I think if you watch, so I don't know how much field goal protection you watch, Craig. Not a ton, but like <laughs> right. I watched this one a couple of times and was right. like, yeah, that's a penalty. But if you go back and watch, you know, let's say watch all, all of them from the season, which I, you could sort that and watch them. I would be willing to get like, I would be willing to wager that there's probably a 60% chance that that happens 60% of the time. And it's more significant and it's worse than that. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things that is, is yes, it is breaking a rule, but they made a decision to call that there probably because of Minnesota pointing it out, which is totally legitimate because like you said, it is a penalty, right? but it happens. When it's a 22 yard field goal and you're trying to get the ball back, don't commit the penalty. That would be what I would say to that. Uh, All right. And that's it for the show. Uh, We, we kind of have some options of what we can do on Friday uh, because Monday Monday. night football, uh, you know, so we'll probably do some level of preview for sure on Friday. We'll see if there's any more news on the ownership front or any more interesting guests we can have on. It's always a great excuse when we kind of have an extra podcast to bring someone on and talk. So we'll figure out what we want to do for Friday's pod. That's why you should subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Whatever we do, we promise it'll be entertaining. We promise it'll be talking about the commanders. And that's what you're here for. Entertaining talk about the commanders. Knowledgeable talk about the commanders. Maybe even to learn a thing or two. I learned at least seven things every single episode. So uh, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening right now. We'll see you Friday. And then we'll also have, obviously, more preview uh, going into Monday Night Football. And then we'll figure out our schedule for next week as well. We'll have all that squared away by Friday. So make sure you subscribe. And first thing Friday morning, there will be a fresh new pot. Uh, that's it. That's all. We'll see you then here on Take